going to be turning to Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> As you turn there, I want us to perhaps consider a shared feeling we all have and an observation that um, perhaps we can all agree with. See, you and I can often handle small things. <laughs> we can shrug off altercations. But whenever they start building, that's when it starts getting heavy, right? It's interesting to me that, that the Bible opens with the recorded sins that it does. It escalates rather quickly. The first is disobedience by something that seems perhaps from the outside, for me, very telling of who I am, rather shrug-offable. <laughs> Ate a fruit we shouldn't have. <laughs> now, the, the symbolism, the implications is what's outstanding for the first time ever, ignoring or doubting God, doing what I want to do instead of not Him, and not what He wants me to do. And then really the next two recorded sins are infractions of the two greatest commandments, love God and love people. Cain decides to give God the leftover of his work and then murder his brother. <laughs> and from Genesis 3 to 6, there is this, this building, this momentum, this idea that, that this was bad, but I got over it. But, but now it's just every single day, sin after sin after sin after more sins after more copious sins after multitudes of sin and it starts spreading like a cancer and we get this depressing summary in Genesis 6 when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved in a small way, have you been there? <laughs> have you ever woke up one morning and not only was it one sin done against you that bothered you, but now it was many and you felt like you were a drop in a big puddle of sins and sins and sins. See, sometimes it's sin we do. Sometimes it's sin done against us. And sometimes, um, excuse me, sometimes the sins in the world that we see as well, and all of it becomes so blatant, and it gets to us, and it begins to weigh on us, and, and sometimes we come to the spot of Habakkuk does, in Habakkuk 1, where he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save, why do you force me to look at injustice, why do you tolerate wrongdoing, Oppression and violence are in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And sin at this level can cause us to question like Habakkuk. Will there ever be justice done? Will there ever be a righteous world? Will there ever be a reckoning where, to where the corrupt and the unjust and the unrepentant sinner must 
finally come to grips and face what they've done. And the peace-loving and the righteous and the right-hearted will finally attain what they're looking for. Well, the answer today is yes. <laughs> yes, there is. I invite you to stand with me in honor of hearing and reading the Word of God. And let's read Second Peter 1, 3, excuse me, Second Peter 3, 1 through 13. Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fall asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Um, did I? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> they deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought from water and through water. Through the, <clears throat> excuse me, through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved... In this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, we think about our world and we so long for a day where righteousness dwells. Father, we sometimes get so burdened with all the sinning, whether it be our own sins that we've done and the tragedies we've left in its wake, whether it be sins done against us, whether it be sins not even done against us, but it affects us rather maliciously, we get rather tired of it. Father, there is hope. You have sent your son Jesus first time to save us from our sins that for those of us who are in you, we can be on a path to find redemption, to find freedom from the sins that captivate us. But at the same time, you promise a second coming where the righteousness will dwell throughout the whole land. Father, we pray today as we study your word that you would give us wisdom, not only for that day, but for our own day. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would be the one speaking, not I. And we ask for the obedience and the open heart and the open ears to hear your word. Father, may today be a day of salvation. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I 
<clears throat> I don't know why. I don't like putting a favorite episode, if you will, favorite part of the Christmas nativity story. But for some reason, the wise men <clears throat> have always piqued my curiosity. I've actually, I think, preached to their story directly twice, and I've made mention to them other times in the Christmas season. But perhaps what interests me in re- relation to our topic is the reverence the wise men have and the fear that Herod has. Yes, angels show up and tell shepherds to go and see this baby, and there's a prophet and a prophetess at the temple who prophesy over Jesus, and Mary sings about him in all these worshipful, kingly overtones. Very important. We do look at those things, and rightly so. But a baby that's never been seen before has caught the attention of some mysterious pagan, maybe kings, maybe astronomers, obviously rich people from the east. This baby that has not been seen has caught their attention and their worship. And once they relay their traveling reasons to Herod, again, this unseen baby has caught the hatred and venom of granted a king who wasn't short on sharing it for random insane reasons. And it sparks in me to perhaps ask in a different way than the song asks, what child is this? (laughs) Matthew tells us the wise men ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Deeply disturbed. Why? King Herod and and perhaps the corrupt ruling class with them in Jerusalem already fear for their power (laughs) because things are going the way they want them to. They're rich, they're fat, and they're happy. (laughs) And if some studied wise pagans over here are chasing stars believing a prophetic king has been born, what's going to happen to our kingdom? What child is this? You know, while I personally don't subscribe at all in any way, shape, or form to the the narrative stories of the books and theology like the Left Behind books propose, I do find it telling that most stories like Left Behind are in the category of thriller, perhaps with world catastrophic overtones. I mean, I get it, it is the end of the world, perhaps it deserves such genres. The views I do lean towards when it comes to the end of the world is, I think, much more bright and positive and optimistic. See, like like Jesus' first coming, we, we have the joy of the shepherds. We have the wonder and the awe of Mary and Joseph. We have the rest of Simeon. But also we have the deeply disturbed sinners. Because Jesus' coming means He's in charge, and not them. He's in charge. As Peter is sliding into his third chapter... We find discussion around Jesus' second advent against the backdrop of this. The people who deny his coming or make comments about the delay of his coming do so with a heart like Herod. The heart like Jerusalem at Jesus' first coming. Let's begin in verses 1 through 7, which tells us the scoffers deny the coming. Verse 1 again, and 2 says, Dear friends, this is now... 
the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your, now some old manuscripts say us here, and so Bibles that follow those manuscripts will say also us apostles. Verses 1 and 2 here tells us a few things about Peter's intentions for the rest of the passage that follows. First of all, Peter's intentions is to stir his readers up. This is a good stirring. This is a be filled with joy with what I'm about to tell you. Now, I get it. If you do subscribe to the left behind theology and you do think that the end of world uh, needs to end with one world government and so forth, restricted liberties, I wouldn't want to see the end of the world. I'd rather die or be raptured. But Peter says, I want to stir you up. And then secondly, Peter prefaces everything he's about to say with, Hey, basically, the prophets, the Lord, the apostles have all spoken on these things, right? Due to the immediate context of Peter's sentences here, I'm assuming Peter is in essence saying the holy prophets, our Lord and apostles, have spoken concerning the second coming. Now, I'm probably a little bit more skeptical or hesitant to assign certain passages of Scripture to the end of the world than others might be. But, for example, I think I'm fairly comfortable to assign something like Zephaniah 3.8, a possible candidate. Here God says, therefore, wait for me, this is the Lord's declaration, until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations and to assemble kingdoms. Now, this is kind of why I take it to be about the end of the world. We're talking about multiple nations, it seems like, not just a few nations, In order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. And I also see that fire relating to what Peter talks about later in his passage here in the New Testament. Other passages in the Old Testament, if you want to look later, could be Zechariah 14, or you also see many places in Isaiah And then many of us are familiar with numerous New Testament passages from the apostles talking about the end of the world. I'm kind of preaching through a few of them. And so in order to save time, it feels kind of redundant to just go into them right now. But Peter prefaces this with saying, be stirred about these things. The Bible talks about these things. And then he brings it home to his present time. Verse three, above all, be aware of this scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires saying where is his coming that he promised ever since our ancestors fell asleep all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation scoffers deny jesus coming don't miss this at the end of verse three it's kind of the crux of this first part Because while this is entirely about a passage about the end of the world, it's also about the weight that you and I feel. It's about the the sins on top of sins on top of sins. And oh, look at the horizon, more sins. And we look above and more sins. And we look inside and we see sins. And as the author of Hebrews connects the two advents of Christ, he says, just as it is appointed... For people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many 
will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so scoffers deny, of course they do, because like Herod and like a corrupt Jerusalem, they are following their own evil desires. And for Jesus to come, he's going to disrupt that because Jesus seems to think he's in charge. (laughs) Jesus seems to think things should go how he wants them to go. And it's both the same then and now for people who deny the Lord's coming. I don't think it's really for reasons of not enough evidence. It's not for reasons of not being convinced by the scriptures. Or I don't think it's for reasons for the inability of anybody telling them the Lord's coming back. It's not that they're not persuasive enough. No, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires. That's the biggest problem. I believe we live in a world, and many Christians have bought this, that for everyone who denies or doubts God, well, it's just because... We've not been persuasive enough. We've not presented the right evidence. We've not given all the information we can. But I believe the Scriptures tells us this, that for people who deny Christ, period, or deny that He's their Savior, or deny His coming or His judgment on the world, that this is the problem. (laughs) They want to follow their own evil desires. We do this ourselves. Well, you are all perfect. I do this myself. (laughs) It's not a sin. It's just my one hang-up. It's not that I'm sinning when I do these things. You know, my dad, my grandfather was like, it's, it's just a family problem we wrestle with. Denial, diminish, shrug off, forgive ourselves. Don't judge me. You have your own problems too, right? People who don't want anything to do with Christ and don't want anything to do with a supposed coming judgment fear the fact can't face the fact that sin is something that needs to be dealt with. And if sin isn't dealt with in and through Christ, sin is going to be dealt with concerning me and through me. Peter continues, verse 5, excuse me, they deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is quite ironic to me, because it seems like in the first case, when the world was judged in a huge way, scoffers following their own evil desires was the primary reason God disrupted the world with a flood. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil. All the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. See, sin shouldn't happen. People shouldn't kill each other. People shouldn't envy one another. People shouldn't betray one another. People shouldn't mock God. People shouldn't be corrupt, power-hungry monsters who lord over other people. And this really upsets God. This grieves God. This provokes God. And so when the Herods of the world hear, he's here, they wet their pants. (laughs) It means a king greater than them is here. Dad's home. (laughs) 
And if you find yourself drowning in a pile of sin, 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 just 2020 on steroids, all the bad things that have happened, and there seems to be no way of escape, then though it sounds terrifying, it should bring you hope to know that the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. There will be a reckoning. What child is this? Then I saw heaven opened. There was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepresses of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, this day is coming. People wonder. People doubt. That's Peter's point. They don't see it happening, so they wonder. Huh, sure. And you know the Herods of the world shrug things off, mock, comb things over with doubt because they're scared on the inside. It's a nervous reaction. Days are numbered. Their power is not their own. It's just given to them. And if it's not stewarded well, well, you know what happens. Now, especially in light of Christmas, you're like, this is a great Christmas sermon so far, Kevin. We much prefer the content baby. The baby Jesus that Joseph and Mary are crying over at the manger, Christmas card Jesus, peaceful with a halo. But don't let the fact that God will judge make you doubt his goodness. Make you doubt his grace and his love. Peter writes, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but it is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So the scoffers mock, oh really, God's coming back, where is he? Waiting a really long time, (laughs) because he wants no one to perish. Does that sound like harsh judgment? How unmerciful and unkind of God. (laughs) He wants nobody to perish, right? Now, a few things about this. Don't dissect these passages looking for signs and milestones, okay? In other words, the point of these two verses are simple. Verse 8, God is on a different timetable. He's eternal. Time is of a little consequence to him. The second point, verse 9, God's patience is actually kindness meant to lead us to repentance. It sounds like Paul says that somewhere. What is Peter not saying here? He's not saying, hey, do some math. With the one day thousand year formula, you'll figure out when God comes back. That's not at all what Peter is saying. He's actually borrowing this from a Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90 verse 4. And his point is again to just say, God's eternal. He operates on a different timetable. Secondly, in verse 9, is Peter saying, hey, as soon as every single person on planet earth is is finally saved, then God will return? No. While God's heart is obviously one that wants everyone to be saved and no one to perish, what Peter says next tells us that verse 9 here isn't a condition on God's returning. It's just his desire. 
His patience is kindness so that many might be saved. So we need to hold these two ideas in balance. Patience. God is extremely patient. He wants everyone to repent. But at the same token, there will be a day. I imagine it will be a lot like the first coming where Paul says in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time uh, had come, God sent forth His Son. So in the fullness of time, I believe God will send His Son again. And when He does, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. I'm thankful. I don't think I've ever had anyone (laughs) rob my house. But I've had one of my cars torched when I lived in Kamii. Um, Still with my parents. Somebody decided to put a Molotov cocktail through the sunroof. So I'm going to go with that illustration. When my mom woke me up and told me that the firefighters were getting there at 2 or 3 in the morning because my car was on fire, what did I do? Man, I was so angry with myself. I said, I knew they were going to do that. How come I didn't make preparations for it? Man, watch my house tonight. We scheduled this burning the other day. Man, I'm such a ditz. No, nobody expects their car to be torched. Nobody expects a thief to come. If you hear your house being broken into, nobody says, Oh, man, that was tonight. Oh, man. Rather, the element of surprise unexpectedness is what these people bank on. Likewise, not likewise in the, in the sense of a thief's malicious intent, but likewise when it comes to unexpectedness, so it will be on the last day, Jesus' final coming. In other words, nobody I think will be able to say, well, I saw this one coming. <laughs> Jesus is back, of course he is. No one will be able to say to their friend, didn't I tell you so? I told you he was coming back right now. <laughs> But then about this day, Peter says, On that day, the heavens and the earth will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. Well, what does this mean? Probably what it sounds like. (laughs) Um, The elements is a debated term because we have nothing better to do but to debate things. But the Greek term has various meanings. It could mean the celestial bodies like the sun, moon, and stars. It could be the basic components of the world, such as earth, air, and fire, and some even speculate it's referring to angelic beings. Now, we could speculate and come up with theories and plant a church and a denomination based on that, but I'm not in the habit of doing that. (laughs) Or, um, we, we don't know what exactly what it means, and there is more to argue over in this verse too, because we love to argue. Is God completely destroying the heavens and the earth and making complete new ones? Or is he just renovating and restoring and repairing a creation? Well, I'm sure whatever view we take on either of these things has immense serious ramifications for our salvation. Actually, it doesn't. None of us have been there. It sounds like a very significant occasion, though. It's going to be a very big day. (laughs) And the earth... And the whole works, it will be, excuse me, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Another debated term. Uh, Laid bare or exposed. It's translated with different words in older manuscripts that the King James, New King James, and MEV all base their translations on. And those sometimes there say burned up. Now those sound like two different ideas, either exposed or burned up. I tend to think that since Peter was already talking about things burning up 
And here he seems to be talking about works and then taking into consideration the next three verses. I'm not going to put any money on it, but I guess I would tend towards what the CSB says about works being exposed. Uh, The works of the people on earth will be disclosed. This should be encouraging because it's why the Herods of the world wet their pants. (laughs) What do you mean the king of the Jews is here? I'm the king of the Jews. He's scared because the king of kings is here. The king who knows hearts, who knows thoughts. And when he comes the second time, the earth's works will be disclosed. All the sinners sinning that we drown in will have their sins out in the open for everyone to see. And there will be justice. You see, he's not coming tickled pink about all the sins that are taking place. And also at the same time, don't forget, he has offered salvation. And we're living in the Second Peter 3.9 era. He's being patient right now, today, for anyone listening to come to the king right now and say, I believe, I want your salvation that you offer now. Salvation to save me from the judgment that comes because it's salvation that saves me from sins right now. What child is this? It is the child who came to bring salvation for lost souls, sinning souls, and it is the king who will return not with a cross which that cross is extended now, but he comes back with sword and with fire. So what for us to do and tell them? Peter says, since all these things are being dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Three ideas in closing that Peter has here. A, or one, be like Christ has always wanted you to be. Secondly, hasten his coming. Thirdly, the reason for his coming is for the world that we want. See, the reason that Peter's been telling us about Christ's coming is not so we can watch the news and write left-behind novels, okay? Oh, I think I can match this world event to some random prophecy in the Bible taken out of context. That's what the Holy Spirit fills me for. No. Rather, Peter's teaching rather has been to encourage what we, who we ought to be. Holiness. Now some critics and cynics would say, oh, that's nice. Our fear of judgment, our fear of God wanting to give us a giant spanking is what should motivate us to be holy and godly. How nice. No, even Peter in his first letter, completely out of the context of the final coming, reminds us that from the very giving of the law, we've been told to be holy like God is holy. At all times, Paul says in Romans 12 that in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus uh, dying for our sins and giving us new life, our reasonable worship is to become living sacrifices ourselves, holy and pleasing to God. So this is important then. You need to think about this. If Peter's exhortation in light of the second coming of Christ is the same exhortation of who we should be at all times, do you hear the point then? (laughs) Keep doing what you always should be doing until God comes back. See, we, we must aim for the life led by the Spirit at all times. And as we continue to make Christ our Lord and His kingdom come, His will be done, His final coming will come whenever He's set today, set the day. But this is an interesting phrase, though, in verse 12. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Now, Peter has already told us that it's not a matter of delay. 
but it's a matter of not wanting any to perish. So it only makes sense that if we're living like we should always live life, living sacrifices to Jesus, and part of that is answering His great commission, well, we hasten His coming. Now here's, now here's two views on this. Some view it this way. To hasten God's coming is like mowing a lawn. <laughs> mowing a lawn doesn't have a set time. You're gonna get done. You're not gonna get done at a set time. You're gonna get done when the lawn's mowed. So, when the proverbial lawn is mowed and when we've reached that last soul, God's coming back, we've effectively hastened His coming. I tend to view it this way. To hasten God's coming is like being productive at our nine to five job. God has a clock out time. He's, he said it. Whenever I worked for Cloningers on freight nights, there were freight nights when the freight was small and 10 p.m. and closing time couldn't come fast enough. And even though it was only 6 to 10, it felt like a 12-hour evening. Other nights, we would get just the right amount of freight to keep us busy and productive, and it felt like 10 p.m. came and went without us knowing. To hasten the coming of God, in my mind, means that we will be so busy doing what He wants us to do that when the proverbial five o'clock comes around to clock out, we have been hastening his coming. Be like Christ has always wanted us to be holy. Hasten his coming. And finally, the reason for his coming is the world we want. I love the contrast that Peter puts here in verse 13. And I think it's supposed to solidify for us one more time that the vivid description of judgment, which scares people usually, should do the opposite for us. The heavens will be disclosed with fire and the elements will melt with heat. And just like whenever we hear about and we sing about the cross, see the cross was a gruesome sight, a morbid sight. And so the sound of final judgment becomes sweet to us because based on His promise, We wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So this life where it is just sin on top of sin on top of sin on top of sin and sins over there and sins by our leaders, sins by our peers, sins by the wicked generation below us. And we wonder, will it get better? Will it ever be better? Not only God is saying very quietly and softly, well, yeah, maybe. No, Peter says God's not turning a blind eye. God is coming. The only reason he's waiting is that he's hoping all the Herods are wetting their pants and planning to kill people to thwart his coming will instead repent. But when he does come, there will be justice, there will be wrath, there will be reckoning, and there will be salvation accomplished. There will be righteousness and only righteousness. Now that's the kind of kingdom I want to live in. That's who this child is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we hear sinners in the hands of an angry God type sermons as it were and it, it does inspire fear in us. May it be a holy fear, a reverent fear, Because we also, just as much as we trust in your ability to met out wrath and judgment, we also trust in your ability to save. We also trust that what you have extended to us is salvation through the cross of Christ. That you have saved us and that the only reason you're storing up wrath 
is for the people who have forever, it seems like, to repent and come to you, but never make that choice. Father, whether it be through fear or whether it be through love and kindness, as Paul tells us in Romans 2, would you continue to powerfully beckon sinners to come to you? Because that's the kind of kingdom you want where nobody is left out, where everyone is included. Father, it would be great if the time you came back is you had little wrath to deal out. Father, your word tells us that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, Father, help us to be hastening your coming by doing and being exactly who you want us to be in terms of witnessing to brothers and sisters, witnessing to neighbors, witnessing to co-workers. Father, and even in the random time where you give us a stranger on the street and your Holy Spirit prompts us very heavily, you need to talk to this person about me. Would we be obedient? Would you help us to be obedient to your great commission? Father, we love you. We thank you that you came, first of all, to die for our sins. We thank you that we look forward to a second time that you're coming and that all the problems of this world will fade away and that we will live in a kingdom where righteousness dwells. Thank you. We love you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.